0: Coming up, Michael transports us all the way back to the 90s. That's next. From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of The Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 632 for the week of November 27th. 2016. The Does Unplugged Disneyland Edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan the perfect Disneyland vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. I am your host, Tom Bell, and I'm joined by my good friends, Nancy Johnson. Hey! Asleep. Mary Jo Malata-Willie.
1: <laughs> Hello. She's delayed.
0: <laughs> yes. And Michael Bolt No, she's what? already... And Michael Bowling.
2: Hey, hey there, hi there, ho there.
0: <laughs> so what? she's like, thinks about it. Hey
3: there. No, you. I was sitting back in my chair oh, listening, you know and I coming. wasn't right on top of my. You know I was, coming. I just wasn't fast enough.
0: Okay. <sighs> all right, Lord,
3: pick on me all today.
0: Yep. Uh, <laughs> hey, Michael, how are you? <laughs>
2: I'm fine. How are you? Good. good.
0: So, who's in charge now? Is this? Are we still? Are we still in the Michael Eisner era?
2: We are. We okay, are. Cool. We're. we're but, but we're not to the. Are the we Michael to? Office.
0: Are we to the press? Was it Paul Pressler and was it? Okay, that's d- coming d- you up need later, to right? Just
2: stop talking. Yeah. Tom? Okay. Yes.
0: Yeah, so never mind. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: I'm confusing my. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're cutting out on me there. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. Well, after the incredibly turbulent 1980s, optimism was high at the Walt Disney Company in 1990 as plans for new films, television programs, and theme park attractions were announced or already underway. However, the company was soon to experience even more growth with Michael Eisner's announcement to the stockholders of his plans for the 1990s, which he called the Disney Decade. Mm -hmm. Now, in his announcement to the theme park division of his plan, Eisner stated there would be a massive investment in the California and Florida Disney resorts, including new attractions in each park, new theme parks, and new resort hotels. Now Disneyland was supposed to enjoy the benefits of these ambitious expansion plans, since the company was anxious to expand its presence in Southern California and make the Disneyland Resort a multi-day destination for visitors. And we've, we've certainly continue to hear that. Now, what I want you to now now I now I know this is all going to be old news to you because here we are in the new millennium, but we can sit back and and look back and. And hear what all the plans are that we all know came to fruition. So the Muppets were an important part of Disneyland's expansion plans. Disney MGM Studio Park's Muppet Vision 3D would be duplicated at Disneyland. Also from the Disney MGM Studios would be the live action stage show, Here Come the Muppets. A new afternoon parade, the magnificent Muppet All Star Motorcade, would star our Muppet Pals along with a performance by the Electric Mayhem. (laughs) Michael Eisner also hoped to use his partnerships with filmmakers and actors to create attractions for his parks. Hoping the studio's new Dick Tracy film starring Warren Beatty would become a film and Disneyland comic book franchise, the Dick Tracy musical review Diamond Double Cross opened in June 1990. Another proposed attraction for Disneyland was the Young Indiana Jones Adventure Spectacular, which would be a stunt show designed to compete with Universal Studios' Miami Vice Stunt Show. Oh, we certainly do remember um, that Young Indiana Jones Adventure Spectacular, don't we? A new land would open in 1993, just in time for Mickey Mouse's 65th birthday, Mickey's Starland, next to It's a Small World. Included in this land would be Kermit the Frog Presents Muppet Vision 3D. In 1994, guests would be transported to Tomorrowland 2055, 100 years after Disneyland's opening. The theme would be the Earth after it was discovered and visited by intergalactic aliens who, of course, answered the question, Now that you've discovered the Earth, what are you <laughs> going to do with I'm going to Disneyland? No. No. <laughs> Yeah. Oh this Tomorrowland would have been filled with otherworldly plants and animals. Space mountains multi-story design would be extended throughout the land with skywalks connecting all the attractions. Strobing fiber optic lights would be embedded into the concrete. Even the men's restrooms would be out of this world with <laughs> mood sensing urinals. I-, I I don't know. <laughs> That would have Weird. been. Weird. <laughs> I mean, would the would the lights change color depending upon your mood when you unzipped? I don't know.
3: <laughs> um, it depends um, if you have to go to the bathroom with John Stamos or not. <laughs> right.
0: My, my mood. Is, my mood is pensive. <laughs> oh
1: my gosh. Oh my gosh.
2: Star Tours and Space Mountain would remain. Yeah, just and keep going. Just, yeah. I'm just rolling <laughs> along here. And four, but it you know, makes you wonder where to be wearing that mood ring, huh? Anyway, Star <laughs> Tours and...
3: <laughs> As we how, pick Tom off the floor.
2: <laughs> how late is it? Uh, Star Tours and Space Mountain would remain and new four attractions would be built alien encounter which we would be built at walt disney world's yeah. magic kingdom pluck two's fantastic galaxy review would perform in the old carousel theater in which aliens from another galaxy would put on a show this attraction would be similar to america sings with an all animatronic animatronic cast the plan was to ask michael jackson to voice the alien host of the show The Circle Vision 360 Theater would have a new film combining audio animatronics and in-theater effects exploring the scenic wonders and culture of Western civilization. The last addition to Tomorrowland 2055 would be a new 3D film by George Lucas to replace Captain Eo. To celebrate the 40th anniversary of Disneyland in 1995, a Little Mermaid attraction would open in Mickey's Starland. 1996 would welcome in the opening of a whole new land within Disneyland, Hollywood Land, which would be a recreation of Hollywood Boulevard in the 1930s and 40s, with themed shops and restaurants. The centerpiece of this land was to be a large audio-animatronic attraction, Dick Tracy's Crime Stoppers. Guests on this attraction would board a 1930s automobile and find themselves in the middle of a police car chase through the streets of Chicago whilst having a shootout with gangsters. The remaining Hollywoodland attractions would debut in 1999. Toontown Trolley, based on the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, would be a simulator similar to Star Tours, taking guests on a wild ride through the cartoon world of Toontown. Another attraction based on the same film, Baby Herman's Runaway Baby Buggy Ride, would take guests zooming through the Toontown Hospital. Of course, you'd be bouncing wildly downstairs, crashing through doors, and bounding over beds. Finally, another attraction from the Disney MGM Studios would be duplicated, the Great Movie Ride. Superstar Television was another Florida attraction scheduled to be constructed at Disneyland expansion lands for the Disneyland Hotel were also announced. Now, doesn't this all sound fabulous to you? Yes! I, I remember when they built so, all that. So, what do you... Th-
3: <laughs>
2: yes, I know. I I, I, I remember when they built so all
3: that in Florida.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so, um, what do you think? If if this had all happened, what What do you think... Um, how where, popular do you think it would have been, or would we was... be looking at having it... Placed.
0: Where would the Hollywood Land area go?
2: You know that I don't know. Okay. I know they were still looking at areas behind Main Street USA. Okay. they were still looking at expanding be- into the maintenance areas. Okay, um, behind Fantasyland. So um, for some of these areas, for some of these attractions, <clears throat> <clears throat> kind of reminds me
0: of when they announced the um, Haunted Mansion. And it didn't get built for all those years. They just kept making. Well, they built the facade. Yeah, yeah. But they they announced prematurely. Put it that way. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Well, now, as exciting as all these plans for Disneyland were, the announcement of the two point eight billion dollar Point Disney or Point Yeah Port Disney Resort on July nineteen (laughs) ninety were amazing. The Walt Disney Company had long-term leases on the Queen Mary and Spruce Goose in Long Beach, along with development rights for an adjacent 47 acres and the rights to create another 236 acres by filling in the nearby harbor wetland. The Port Disney Resort would front both sides of the mouth of the Los Angeles River, and on the port side, the Queen Mary would be moved 700 feet and would remain as a tourist attraction and hotel and would serve as the resort's marquee. The centerpiece would be Disney Sea, a new ocean-oriented theme park where guests would gain a better understanding of the sea and explore the myths, romance, challenges, and the mysteries of the ocean. Disney Sea would include marine habitats, a research center, state-of-the-art laboratory, a theme park with marine-themed attraction, and a recreation of Long Beach's oceanfront when it was an amusement park. Of course, shopping restaurants and five new hotels were part of the plan. The resort would be built in two phases, with the first opening in 2000 and the second in 2010. The resort was expected to attract 10 million guests annually in its first phase and more than 13 million annually when the second phase opened. So now, do you all remember the announcement oh, I do. for Disney? So Mary Jo, what do you remember of this and what are your thoughts?
1: Um, I remember being really excited because they were talking about um, <laughs> building up that that area and it was... It was so believable because that was the area that they used to have the um, P.O.P. is what we used to call it. No, I'm sorry, the Pike. P.O.P. was on the other side, Um, was the Pike. And I remember back when it was an amusement park. So the thought that Disney was going to take over that whole area and build it up. I just remember just being really excited because I think we were also talking about Disney Quest and other things. And it just seemed that that Disney land west i'll call it um was gonna be was gonna start expanding and bringing so much more
2: right yeah i remember too the the discussions of transportation between disneyland and port disney and they talked about everything monorails and trains and buses and all kinds of stuff
1: yeah i think it was coming out in, in those days we had these magazines for the south bay that um they, the the writers would, would do whole articles about it. And I remember getting the paper on Sunday and reading, just reading through it. And there was just, it's just, people were just really excited that this was going to happen.
2: Yeah, no, I, yeah it, it was very exciting. And um, I'm going to talk more about Port Disney in my series, Disney Neverland. Because as we know, Port Disney was never built, <laughs> yeah. at least in this country. So, um, now, Disneyland started in 1990 with a celebration of its 35th anniversary titled 35 Years of Magic. At the center of the celebration were the new Party Gras Parade, D- Dick Tracy's Diamond Double Cross live action stage show, and the Dream Machine. And that, that has nothing to do with Scooby-Doo. I when, remember
3: all of that. Do you? Yes.
2: Oh, good! I remember well, the-
3: Dick Tracy's Double Cross in Florida.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, that film Double Crossed poor Michael Eisner. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but we'll get we'll get more into that. Um, When guests walk through the turnstiles, they would receive a commemorative 35th anniversary Dream Machine Scratcher ticket, which would reveal if the recipient had won a prize. And lucky guests with a winning ticket would have the opportunity to pull the lever on the Dream Machine in the hub to find out which prize they've won. So prizes could be anything from Disney videos, plush animals, Mickey Mouse watches, park passes, collector pins, commemorative coins, and posters. And the grander prize included $1,000 U.S. savings bonds and Delta Airlines tickets. And each day, one guest would win a new geo car or truck. And that would rise up from the center of of the Dream Machine, although the winner would have to claim their prize from a local Chevrolet Geo dealership. So, Mary Jo, did you win a Geo or what did you win?
1: No, I, okay, that was the first time that I ever went to Disneyland more than two or three times. I think I went to Disneyland five times that year because I won, three times I won um, ice cream, but two times I won tickets to Disneyland. And that's when it was the the one-day ticket. You know, there were no hoppers or anything like mm-hmm. that that I knew about, at least. And I remember the cars when you would come up. Because, remember, we parked where California Adventure is today. Which
2: so uh, is why parking. there were no hoppers.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you hopped in one spot. But anyway, so they, they had cars out there in front of the park. Um, and then they had kind of like a, a red carpet type. And you would walk up... Um, to the entrance of, of Disneyland. I remember it. So it was just such a, a cool time and looking at the cars and everything. But yeah, I got two tickets to Disneyland. I was so excited.
2: Yeah. I, I know. I won uh, ice cream, you know, Mickey bars, all that. Carol was cleaning out, I don't know, a drawer or something when I was at destination D and she actually found her ticket, her pass that she won. She never used oh, that, it. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, She
0: never used it. Oh my she
1: God. She
2: never used it. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think
0: probably still good. No,
2: I, I would think so. But now it's you know more. Ooh, yeah, look at yeah. It's probably more of a collector's item now, or a bookmark <laughs> on the other. I don't know. Um, well, yeah,
1: had they had to do <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, they had to do quite a bit of excavating at the central plaza in order to so that that geo could go up and down the car and truck and all that. So anyway. So, now, the Pardi Gras parade was a Mardi Gras-inspired spectacle featuring over 150 singers, dancers, and stilt walkers. And cast members tossed souvenir coins and Mardi Gras beads from their floats at the guests all along the parade route. But what really set this parade apart from all others were the huge Disney character, Falloons. Now, you might be asking, what's a Falloon? Well, it's a large, cold, air-filled balloon that moves on the base of a parade float. So float plus balloon is a falloon. Uh,
1: yeah. I remember that that was that's probably when, one of my top five Disney parades. Mm-hmm. And
2: no, I agree.
1: One thing that um, I distinctly remember is Nick was three years old when uh, the parade and he saw Ariel up there and he shouted very loudly, Chee chees!"
2: which of
1: course made everybody laugh but uh yeah that was my son
2: well i remember (laughs) the first time we took our children to design it was during the 35th anniversary so they were young and we would stay at a at a, a a motel that we liked that was next door to what was either the Emerald or the Pan Pacific, whatever the Paradise Pacific was called at the time. And then we'd walk over to the Disneyland Hotel and either you know and hop the tram and then come over to the front of the park and or we'd take the monorail, but this was their first time, so I told Carol, we need to go in through the front. and they and so we took the. You know, walked over to Disneyland Hotel, took the tram over, and we got off. And as we walked into the park, the, for the first time with the children, the Party gras Parade was rounding Town Square. So they walk into this huge parade. As they walk in, all these beads just fall at their feet. Oh my and I gosh. thought, what a perfect entrance to your first time at Disneyland. This huge parade of these faloons and these dancers and these beads. And do you think they remember any of this? No. No. <laughs> but I do. But anyway, so. so anyway, the colorful faloons were 45 feet in height, which meant the skyway had to be closed during the parade to prevent a sky bucket from possibly hitting the top of a faloon. Now, the party grop parade ran daily until November 18th, 1990, when it was time for the marching wooden soldiers, reindeers and Santa Claus to take to the streets for Disneyland's annual Christmas fantasy parade. Now, Walt Disney Worlders would have the opportunity to see our redressed falloons in the Magic Kingdom's 20th anniversary surprise celebration parade. Now, on February 4th, the television special Disneyland's 35th anniversary celebration aired as an episode of The Magical World of Disney on NBC. And this was directed by John Landis and starred Tony Danza and the Muppets. Now, again, I love these only to see what, who are the celebrities of the day. So the show opens with a cast of Cheers sitting around the bar watching female mud wrestling on television when Woody walks in and asks to turn the television to the Disneyland special and the gang objects. But Woody retorts, everyone loves Disney. And so the show included. The cast of Cheers, a ride through of the Haunted Mansion attraction. Charles Fleischer, who is the voice of Roger Rabbit, portrayed several characters. There was footage of opening day of Disneyland with actors Ronald Reagan and Art Linkletter hosting. And then of the 35th anniversary rededication with President Ronald Reagan hosting. Uh, The new party Gras parade was shown, footage of the original construction of the theme park, famous visitors to the theme park over the last 35 years, Michael Eisner talking to the very first Disneyland guests 35 years later, although he seemed to be in a hurry, Um, Tony Danza on the Jungle Cruise attraction featuring guests being eaten by crocodiles and attacked by animals before being shot at by the Jungle Cruise skipper um see 3 po and r2d2 tony danza the three little pigs gonzo and miss piggy on the star tours attraction miss piggy and cinderella with gonzo as your fairy god thing <laughs> <Jim> <laughs> an <Varney>.
3: excellent character <laughs> yes
2: jim varney is earnest sharing home videos of his childhood visit to disneyland and then DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince <laughs> singing a hip-hop version of Super Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yep. Yeah. That was a and, classic. And, yes. And this is available on YouTube. If you want to just pause right now and go watch this Disney treasure. Uh, A number of shops and shows closed and opened throughout the park in 1990. On April 6th, the Blue Ribbon Bakery shop opened on Main Street, replacing the sun-kissed Citrus House. The Pendleton Woolen Mills Dry Goods Store in Fantasyland closed on April 29th. This opening day shop had been a favorite of Walt Disney and his family. On the same day, one man's dream show gave its last performance at the Videopolis stage. Guests could no longer purchase cigarettes in Disneyland when the fine tobacco shop on Main Street USA closed on June 3rd and reopened as the patented pastime shop on June 15th, offering crafts, needlepoint kits and models. However, the cigar store Wooden Indian remained in front of the shop. The stage show Dick Tracy starring in Diamond double cross began performances at videopolis on june 15th it would give its last performance on december 31st in october jack lindquist was named president of disneyland finally in 1990 the beloved dumbo flying elephants attraction was replaced with disneyland paris's version with more elephants and water features 1990 in ushered in what would become a standard for Disneyland, a greater scope of corporate synergy with other divisions of the Walt Disney Company. The It's a Small World pathway from the motorboat cruise to It's a Small World was transformed into Disney Afternoon Avenue and themed to Duckburg, USA. Two attractions were rece-
3: <laughs> Our
2: children Sorry. loved this. So, um, I know. <laughs> two attractions received light overlays of popular television cartoon shows featured on the Disney Afternoon. The motorboat cruise became the motorboat cruise to Gummy Glen. Guests could watch plywood characters from the Gummy Bears television <laughs> series. Make gummy bear juice as they cruised the waterway. Uh, this, and this is the last time we ever went on the motorboat cruise. And I remember the boat my son and I were in broke down. Oh. And so the boat behind us had to, it was like sort of a water version of Utopia. It had to push us. It had to bump into us and push us through the, uh, the rest of the attraction. So we just limped our way through Gummy Glen. Um, like <laughs> I
1: remember my kids really liked that. I mean, to me, it was really cheesy as an adult. It was. But my children, because <laughs> no, used to I watch. Love- did it? Yeah. Because remember, they had the uh, afternoon shows. And so my kids could really relate to it. They loved that whole area.
2: Oh, they yeah. Mine did, too, as well. Because they also, I think our children are about the same age. So they watched the, um yeah, they watched that whole afternoon lineup on television. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, Fantasyland Utopia became the Rescue Rangers Raceway. And beneath the tracks next to It's a Small World was Baloo's Dressing Room, where guests could meet the star of Tailspin and The Jungle Book. Uh, Most of this whole area was removed by November 10th, 1991. Uh, on May 8th, 1991, another major expansion for Disneyland is announced in the Walt Disney Story Theater in the Main Street Opera House. With the goal of making Disneyland a multi-day destination resort, similar to Walt Disney World, plans were announced for a 500 dollars and- 50-acre garden district, a theme park named Westcott Center, similar to Epcot Center at Walt Disney World, three new hotels and upgrades to the existing Disneyland Hotel. Westcott Center would have two distinct lands, Future World and World Showcase. Future World will include the Wonders of Living, Wonders of Space, and the Wonders of Earth pavilions. World Showcase will include pavilions representing Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Americas, allowing guests to visit the seven wonders of the world. A 45-minute boat cruise would encircle the theme park, taking guests to each pavilion. The theme park will be built on the site of Disneyland's parking lot. Besides expanding and upgrading the Disneyland Hotel, an 800-room resort based on the Hotel del Coronado would be added with the name the New Disneyland Hotel, a which I assume they would rename at some point, a low-rise 960-room Magic Kingdom inspired by Mission Santa Barbara and an 1800 Westcott Lake Resort inspired by the Beverly Hills Hotel will be built along West Street. Um, a waterfront shopping and entertainment district called Disney Center would surround a six-acre lake. The buildings will be inspired by the Catalina Casino, the Venice Boardwalk, and the Palisades, a 5,000-seat Amphitheater named the Disney Bowl is planned near Harbor Boulevard and parking will not be a problem because huge parking structures will be built near the edges of the new resort and guests will ride people movers to the front gates. An elevated people mover system will connect all areas of the expanded Disneyland Resort. It was estimated that the new Disneyland Resort would create 12,500 new jobs and generate $45 million in taxes each year for Anaheim, $9 million to Orange County, and $70 million to the state of California. The project was scheduled to break ground in 1993 and open in 1999. Doesn't this all sound fabulous?
1: It sounds fantastic.
2: (laughs) I know. So what happened? (laughs) Yeah, good, good question. So what did you? So what do you think? I mean, had you heard about Westcott at all?
3: Yeah. Well, what did you living in the Midwest? Living in the Midwest, we knew there was supposed to be some kind of Epcot thing that they kept talking about that that wasn't coming off, and that that they kept delaying plans to build it and things like that. So being a Walt Disney Worlder at the time, it was really interesting to hear how they were gonna expand Disneyland. So I mean but and we heard it was gonna be very, very similar to Epcot, that they were just gonna make an Epcot on the West Coast, basically, and duplicate the park is what we kept hearing out of the Walt Disney Worlders.
2: So And and actually it was going it was going to be much more it was gonna be very different. In a way, I mean, it, the design—it was going to be multi levels. where There were going to be hotels within the park. Um, it was—they—it was going to be very, very unique, in a lot of ways. It was going to have a spaceship Earth type um, centerpiece, but it was going to be gold, because you know the golden state and uh, it, 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 there, there were really a lot of similarities but in, in a lot of differences um and I, i'm going to get more into westcott sort of it's it's rise and fall um and if in again when i talk about when i get into my disney neverland series uh there are a lot of forces at work here between um Local government, state government, federal government—the the hubris of Disney—and then the local um, neighborhood associations, all oh. just—you know—it all just um, it, it, they they all just fought against this in a lot of ways.
1: I had always wondered why um, it never went through because I <laughs> I had never been to Walt Disney World at the time, but I remember reading things about um about westcott and it always sounded kind of exotic to me and i remember being really excited about it and and all the plants and everything and then then it just kind of went kaput right Mm -hmm. so yeah
2: yeah and there are some other forces at work that i'm going to talk about in a few moments that uh, that affected the disney decade from a recession that hit to Euro Disneyland, I mean, all kinds of things, you know. It was sort of a good idea for uh, for the wrong location at the wrong time, so.
3: Well, you know, as a Midwesterner hearing about all that, you know, we had no clue If you'd never been to Disneyland, you had no clue about how the residences affected things, you know, that that they're even, you know, you always had that Walt Disney World view of this must be what something's like. And you never realized fully that Disneyland was just in a completely different environment, that there were neighbors, that there was, you know. Those restrictions, right, put on by
1: the. Locals.
3: Right. It's like all the people who come here, you know, from other parts of the country and don't realize those fireworks don't get off and, you know, don't go off and complete by 10 o'clock that you're done, you know, that there is no chance for fireworks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a completely foreign concept to a <laughs> Walt Disney Worlder. Yeah. like Who's never that. been educated. Oh,
2: yeah. I'm- Oh, absolutely, yeah. And this was the days before the internet and all that, so you didn't have, yep. you didn't have a. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to see what it really looked surrounding area looked like.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you had Records Disney. In in the mid '90s, because that was the group I was on, and and we had Mike Scopa telling us things, you know, all over the place, and and that was pretty much it. You know, there was just that yeah. AOL community, mm-hmm. effectively, and. Yeah. That's, you know, the community I hung with, so. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. But but also, we have to keep in mind now, Port Disney in Long Beach had already been announced. And Peter Rummel, who managed the Walt Disney Company's real estate holdings adjacent to Disneyland, cautioned Anaheim leaders that, as a business judgment, it's too risky to build both at the same time in the same markets. This was a clear warning to Anaheim city leaders who had proposed that the Walt Disney Company help offset the negative effects of the city's growth, including providing $91 million in assistance for local school districts and building affordable housing for the projected increase in workforce. Despite Rummel's warning, Anaheim city leaders were confident they could reach a deal with Disney now since the announcement of the port disney resort long beach city officials were beside themselves with the prospect of having a disney resort in their city however almost from the moment the announcement was made disney ran into opposition from the california coastal commission the sierra club and other environmental groups the the 1976 california coastal act did not permit landfill for recreational purposes And Disney needed the California Coastal Commission's approval for the 236 acres of landfill. Without this additional land, the project would not be viable. Disney sponsored the Senate Bill 1062, which would exempt them from the 1976 California Coastal Act, but it died in legislature. Meanwhile, back in Anaheim, opposition to the Westcott Center plans were mounted by a new neighborhood group called Anaheim H-O-M-E. The, the, they protested the city's planned use of eminent domain to condemn private property and demanded the city retain ownership of the new parking structures to keep the fees and lease the structures to Disney. The parking structures and enhancements to the areas surrounding the park were critical for the success of the project. Disney lobbied Congress for federal funding for a $395 million highway project with off-ramps leading directly to the resort's parking structures. The local newspapers came out against the project and were offended that Disney is asking citizens to pay for a project for which they will later be charged admission to enter. Disney's bid for federal money was rejected, and the Anaheim Bulletin summed it up. The Disney company has finally got its comeuppance. On September 9, 1991, walls went up around the rivers of America as the river was drained yet again. However, this river draining elicited excitement amongst guests as they anticipated the installation of the Imagination River Spectacular, The show would go through a few name changes before its debut. (laughs) The idea for this show arose two years prior during a planning and design session when Michael Eisner tasked his creative team to come up with 20 major ideas within 48 hours. At the end of the session, Eisner was presented with ideas ranging from a patriotic extravaganza to a park-wide celebration of Disney's early years. The Project Eisner Greenlit was a high-tech water show inspired by new technology the Imagineers had seen during a community festival in a small town in France in which films were projected onto water screens. The Imagineers improved upon the water screen technology, added advanced projection systems, lasers, pyrotechnics, and fire effects. The show would be based on Disney films with a 90s sensibility. What would add to the magic of this nighttime spectacular for many guests is that the rivers of America would continue to appear as a rural river during the day, whilst hiding all the infrastructure needed to support the show. So the old grist mill was taken down and a new one built on the site of the old bait shack. A cider mill was constructed to serve as the equipment room. In front, of a new, in front, a new stage was built with a 20-foot sliding door. Fifteen feet below the riverbed, a basin was built to house the 43-foot inflatable dragon. Oh, spoiler alert there. (laughs) (laughs) Also hidden on the island were several hydraulically elevated lifts, which included two light towers, a lift for Mickey, and a lift to raise Maleficent 32 feet into the air. Across the river, along the New Orleans Square Riverfront, three retractable light towers were installed. To improve sight lines, the stately magnolia trees that Bill Evans had saved years before were removed. Nearly 350 waterproof costumes were recreated, and an original orchestral score was composed with familiar music being rescored. The Disney marketing machine was in full force to promote this new nighttime spectacular, which in late 1991 was now named Imagination. Scheduled to debut in the summer of 1992, Disney launched a 28-city, $750,000 promotional tour in the western United States, showcasing an eight-story inflatable Maleficent. By December, the name of the show was changed to Phantasmagoria. Phantasmagoria. <laughs> before michael I, I know i know I, it just gets more and more difficult to pronounce okay.
3: well that was like a that's actually like a, a usable scientific word mm-hmm. which is kind of odd that they would choose something that actual for a name
2: <laughs> <laughs> well it's all satisfactual but sure um, <laughs> <laughs> before Michael Eisner, the Imagineers and Disneyland executives finally settled on Fantasmic. Oh, um, <laughs> okay. That's what you're talking about. <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, Disneyland was not the only Southern California theme park to announce expansion plans and new attractions for the summer of 1992. The Indian Village was set to open at Knott's Berry Farm. The flashback coaster at Magic Mountain. Backdraft, The Beetlejuice Show, and The Rocky and Bullwinkle Show at Universal Mm. Studios, Shark Encounter at SeaWorld, and New Water Slides at Raging Rivers and Wild Waters. Southern California theme park goers were looking forward to an exciting summer. However, what would be called the Rodney King Riots erupted in South Central Los Angeles on April 29th and continued through May 3rd. The world watched as the looting, assaults, arson, and other violent acts spread outward from South Central Los Angeles over the six-day period. Theme park executives worried the anticipated summer crowds might not materialize. The park with the largest investment in a new attraction for the summer of 1992 was Disneyland. Disneyland. At a cost of $30 million, more than twice the original estimate, Fantasmic was critical in attracting strong summer attendance and was considered to be a major attraction like Splash Mountain and Space Mountain. With Fantasmic, the Main Street Electrical Parade, and Fantasy in the Sky fireworks, Disneyland was the place to be in the summer nights. The premiere of Fantasmic was scheduled for April 2nd, but with problems with its new technology, it, was de- it delayed the premiere. A soft opening was scheduled, and the press premiere was rescheduled for Wednesday, April 29th. But the rioting in South Central Los Angeles began that same afternoon. Disney quickly pulled its promotional material for Fantasmic that had been emblazoned with, Be here when the night ignites. Oh, my gosh. I know, really. Uh, Fantasmic made its official debut on Wednesday, May 13th to the media and invited guests. The show opened to park guests on May 15th, 1992. So I, I, we saw it like shortly after it debuted. What was your reaction the first time you saw this? Because this amazement. was like nothing we had ever seen before.
1: Yeah. This is, I saw it. My kids were little, it was 1992. You said, right? Kids were mm-hmm. like th- three and four. And my mom and I sat there with the huge crowds on the ground. And I just remember being excited and we were awestruck by the show. I remember it's a yeah. fantastic show. And, and every time that I've seen it with somebody who hasn't seen it before, I almost almost relive that amazement because it's still such a good show. You know, at least um, right now it's it's on hold, you know. But but everybody that I've that has seen that show, and, and every time I see it with like I said with somebody new, I love I love the reactions. I love the the kids with their with their eyes big, you know. And I and the same thing with the adults and tearing up and and everything. But I remember. St- Oh, my gosh! it's so vivid sitting with my mom. Um, and since she's not she's not here any longer, these kind of memories this this is kind of like my bond with my mom, all these the Disney experiences like phantasmic because the first time I saw it, she and I were together with my children. so it's
3: mm-hmm. it's
1: all tied into all tied into that, but I remember the first time what about yeah. you? Oh.
2: Oh, I remember the first time I was awestruck and then our children were sitting right in front of us and they were, they were just blown away. I remember they were, they were frightened during the Maleficent scene when, when she rises in her dragon form out of the water, out of the okay. river. I mean, oh, they actually held each other.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh.
2: Cause they're maybe about three or four years older, I think, than your children. And, um, yeah, they were just, they were just amazed by the whole thing. I remember. Yeah. And
1: Video games and stuff. So all of this, you know, was unique. Mm -hmm. You know these these are truly truly new experiences for all of us.
2: Yeah. Now now for our friends who have not seen the Disneyland version of Phantasmic, here's what guests experienced in 1992. It's not very different from what experience now. The show begins with a faint musical note that swells into a lush fanfare revealing Mickey Mouse on stage. He dances and orchestrates various water fountain effects to the show's theme until bringing up the mist screens, which fades into the Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence from Fantasia. From there, the falling stars of the scene bloom into flowers. Ambient jungle sounds can then be heard, and the show transitions into a jungle scene From the Jungle Book featuring a 100 foot long puppet of Ka and three floating barges carrying King Louie and blacklit monkeys across the river stage. The music segues into an electric guitar rendition of Pink Elephants on Parade from Dumbo as animated pink elephants appear on screen in the form of performers on the island. And the scene transitions into an on-stage marionette sequence from Pinocchio, and Jiminy Cricket appears on screen underwater searching for Pinocchio. An animated monstro appears suddenly, accompanied by a heavy musical score, as he crashes through water, and the sea morphs into the Sorcerer's Apprentice flood scene, and as Mickey looks around in the dark, a ship caught in a storm appears. The screen disappears, and the light Starken. A cannon is fired from the sailing ship Columbia that's now portraying Captain Hook's pirate ship and Peter Pan. That cannon s- scares me every time. And <laughs> yeah. Hook or startles me every time. And I-, I should know by now when it's coming. Hooks me. Peter Pan, Wendy and pirates participate in an energetic stunt sequence. Following the ship is the huge crocodile tick-tock with the sound of a ticking clock emanating from its tail. The scene ends with Hook hanging from the end of the boat, being pursued by the crocodile. And as the scene concludes, three small floats arrive carrying Belle and the Beast, Ariel and Prince Eric, and Snow White and her prince, with the accompanying signature melody from each film. Beauty and the Beast, part of your world, and Day my prince will come. Then, then the music takes on an ominous tone as Mickey's dream takes a turn for the worse. The evil queen from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs appears on stage, calling for her magic mirror, which she conjures on screen in animated form. Angered by Mickey's optimistic imagination, she transforms herself into her old hag disguise and invokes a riled Ursula from The Little Mermaid who ecstatically joins the queen's plot to destroy Mickey. Ursula calls upon Chernabog from Fantasia who summons deceased spirits. He summons Maleficent from Sleeping Beauty who threatens Mickey, now in his brave little tailor outfit. And she transforms herself into an enormous dragon. This is always amazing. On stage, the 45-foot dragon sets the waters ablaze, breathing fire onto the river. Mickey faces the dragon, claiming that he is in control of his imagination and defeats the dragon, destroying the villains in the process. And this is quite loud. (laughs) Then... Everything is silent until Tinkerbell appears. Then you know everything's going to be okay. Magical stars sparkle. In the tavern as the Mark Twain riverboat approaches. A spark of pyrotechnics ignite from the Mark Twain, revealing black and white Mickey in Steamboat Willie attire. The vessel glides past the audience, carrying several dozens of the Disney characters, as a celebratory atmosphere prevails. With another flash, Mickey appears atop the highest point of the of the tavern there is the Sorcerer's Apprentice as he controls a final series of water, fireworks, laser and light orchestrations. Mickey disappears and reappears on stage in his formal attire from the beginning of the show, bidding the audience farewell and disappears once again in a bright blast of fireworks. <sighs> that was a good show. <laughs>
1: that was an excellent <laughs> show. It's just how fantastic was an instant.
2: I remember it. Yeah, but who knows what it'll look like when it comes back. Well, Fantasmic was an instant hit with park guests, much to the delight of Disney executives and Imagineers. However, some of Disneyland's neighbors were less enthusiastic. Margaret Douglas, who was a resident of a nearby mobile home community, said of Fantasmic, once a night is bad enough. Now we're going (laughs) to have fireworks three times a day. That'll go over like a time bomb in this area. Mike Davis, Disneyland's entertainment director and Fantasmic producer, in an interview with the Los Angeles Times, said he foresees other editions of Fantasmic in the future. Uh, He should have said in the far distant future. We have a venue now that allows us to do a variety of things. Fantastic wasn't the only change park guests saw at Disneyland in 1992. On January 31st, the Professor Barnaby Owl's photographic art studio opened at the exit of Splash Mountain in Disneyland. The World According to Goofy parade debuted on June 19th and would run through November 15th. This parade celebrated the 60th anniversary of Goofy's birthday and his debut in the 1932 short Mickey's Review as Dippy Dog. The parade is led by Dr. Ludwig von Drake and tells the story of Goofy's ancestors throughout the history of civilization, from Goofy Saurus to King Putt, the pharaoh of the fairway, the inventor of pizza during the Renaissance, to Goofy running for president in 1992. And this parade is available for viewing on YouTube. In the Main Street, USA area, the Town Square Café closed on August 2nd. Over in Tomorrowland, the Mission to Mars makes its last flight on November 25th. And to the delight of children, the It's a Small World Toy Shop opens on November 25th, just in time for parents' holiday shopping. (laughs) However, an event across the Atlantic will have a significant impact on the Disney decade. Euro Disney later renamed Disneyland Paris Opens. Whilst Tokyo Disneyland is essentially based on copies of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom attractions, even though the Japanese were led to believe they were copies of Disneyland attractions, the French park was almost entirely redesigned from its earlier versions, making it much more expensive. Unlike Tokyo, which was a runaway success, Euro Disney will struggle for years to turn a profit. Major cultural issues surround the park as Europeans react negatively to many of the Disneyized versions of what are traditional European stories and folk tales such as Snow White, Cinderella, and Sleeping Beauty. Profit estimates for restaurants were based on American dining patterns, and who where we average only forty five minutes, So tables would turn over several times per day. French dining habits of two to three hours greatly reduced the money typically made on food. Similarly, American souvenir buying patterns with a desire for anything Disney, whereas the French were almost entirely uninterested in shirts with Mickey Mouse on them. The unexpected lack of profitability of Euro Disneyland will result in cutbacks in plans for the Disney decade. Nineteen ninety-three begins with the last cruise of the motorboats on January eleventh. The attraction will be replaced shortly by the Fantasia Gardens Topiary Water Gardens. Although the motorboats cruised into the sunset on January fourth, nineteen ninety, January twenty-fourth, nineteen ninety-three, the first new land in twenty years opened its doors or gates to Disneyland guests. Mickey's Toontown. On January 26th, according to Disneyland's press release, Toontown has existed in an exclusive hideaway for cartoon stars since the 1930s. Walt Disney was one of the few non-toons who have ever set foot inside Mickey's Toontown, and he liked it so much that in the 1950s, he decided to build Disneyland on adjoining property. Recently, the residents of Toontown decided to open the place up to non-toon visitors. However, there are some who claim Mickey's Toontown was actually created after the success of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom's Mickey's Birthday Land, which was created for Mickey Mouse's 60th birthday and was later made into a permanent addition to Fantasyland. Well, almost permanent. I talk about this land in my Connecting with Walt episode on the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland. Imagineers went through several concepts for the Disneyland version of Mickey's Birthday Land. Large, intermediate, and small projects were considered, but nothing seemed quite right for Disneyland, with the park's large number of guests mostly living within 100 miles of the park. This new project had to provide enough experiences and surprises for the park's frequent return visitors. Camp Snoopy at Knott's Berry Farm also served as an inspiration for the construction of this land for Disneyland's younger guests. Finally, when Imagineers Joe Lanzero and David Burkhart stepped in, the project took on a new focus. Joe's background in Disney feature animation and character development and Dave's 25 years of Imagineering and Disneyland experience made them the perfect team to create a land for Disney's beloved tunes. First, they went through 60 years of Disney animation material with the goal of creating a town where Mickey and his friends would feel at home. However, they discovered that none of Disney's animation history provided a good look into the world where Mickey lives. So the designers took a look at Disneyland and specifically Main Street USA to create the spirit of a cartoon town that everyone knew but no one could describe. Then in 1998, a new film introducing a new Disney character opened, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? In the film was a whole city of Toontown where the cartoon characters lived. When Michael Eisner suggested Roger Rabbit should have a home in the new land, Mickey's Toontown was born. Mickey and his friends would live in a quiet residential suburbia that Joe and his designers were already working on, and Roger would live in the nearby downtown where Xanias and Chaos rules. A town square would tie these areas together. As the designers worked on the layout of the land, construction began on the site of a maintenance area behind the berm near It's a Small World. The original Disneyland pony farm was moved to the west side of the park, and a tunnel was dug under the Disneyland Railroad. To make room for Roger's downtown area, the original monorail barn was demolished. It had been it had served as a warehouse for Disneyland decorating since 1966. To provide guests with a preview of what to expect in Mickey's Toontown, the Videopolis train station was replaced with the Toontown Railroad Depot. On November 25th, 1992. It was a cartoon version of the Frontierland Depot and characteristic of the architecture and colors of Toontown. To enhance this area, the all-white facade of It's a Small World was painted in pastel colors, similar to Euro Disneyland's version of the attraction. I never particularly cared for that color scheme.
3: Me neither. Because the first time I had come back... (laughs) to disneyland was when they had repainted it and i i kept saying this is not the small world i remember this Mm -hmm. is not what the heck happened to my small world
2: (laughs) but now we can blame toontown on that that one
3: (laughs) and we can thank a wonderful woman named roberta brubaker for painting it back
2: (laughs) that's right (laughs) Now, the grand opening celebration of Mickey's Toontown on January 26th included several celebrities. Amongst them, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Dan Aykroyd, Robin Williams, Candice Bergen, Sally Fields, Ted Danson, Tony Danza. He, Tony Danza, just got around during this time. Danny DeVito, John Davidson, and Harry Anderson. Disney promoted Mickey's Toontown as a complete character community that features Disney characters at home, work, and play. Show producer David Burkhardt said, You aren't just going to see a set. You're going to experience a living, breathing, three-dimensional cartoon environment. Everything is exaggerated. There are no straight lines or conventional architecture. Nothing is real in Mickey's Toontown. It's composed completely of cartoon elements. Mickey's Toontown is divided into three sections, downtown Toontown, Toontown Square, and Mickey's Neighborhood. Toontown was built primarily for children ages three to nine, with gags for adults to enjoy. And they can experience several interactive exhibits and photo opportunities in downtown Toontown, including the Dog Pound, where children can sneak between the rubber Dog Pound bars, the Fireworks Factory, where they can detonate cartoon explosives, and the Post Office with its Talking Letterboxes. Children can also attempt to lift the dumbbells at Horace hor, uh, horse, horse Collar's Gymnasium. They can ring the doorbells at the Toontown Fire Department and Camera Shop, which can be full of surprises. Of course, since it's a downtown, shopping is available at the Gag Factory and the Toontown Five and Dime. The Toontown Square is a good parody of a real town square with three counter service restaurants and clever facades of buildings, such as the Three Little Piggy Bank. The Planning Commission with its ironic sign, the Department of Street Repair with its sign and disrepair, the Department of Ink and Paint, and the Toontown School with school misspelled, the library, and the Toontown City Hall with the animated glockenspiel tower. Mickey's Neighborhood housed the primary reason for which the land was opened. Opportunities for children of all ages to meet Mickey and Minnie Mouse. The backdrop for Mickey's Neighborhood is the 40-foot-tall Toon Hills, with a Toontown sign reminiscent of the famous Hollywood sign landmark. Guests can walk through Mickey's red and yellow bungalow and see his mementos and go out into his garden past Pluto's doghouse into Mickey's barn where they can meet Mickey as he is preparing for his next film role. Next door is Minnie's purple home. Guests visiting Minnie could listen to the messages on her answering machine, sample her perfume, and check out her fashion options using her dressing room computer. In her kitchen, guests could turn on the dishwasher and watch the dishes put on a circus-like act and inspect the contents of her refrigerator, heavy on the cheese, before meeting Miss Minnie herself. Guests can find restrooms at Goofy's gas station and use the interactive public payphones. In Goofy's Bounce House, children could bounce off the walls, floor, furniture, fireplace, everything. In the garden were spinning flowers, popcorn stalks, watery watermelons, and squashed squashes. Disney's lawyers were not happy with Goofy's Bounce House due to frequent injuries caused by children crashing into each other. Next door to Goofy's bounce house was the Miss Daisy, Donald Duck's interactive boat built in his image. Children could climb on the net, play with the periscope whistle bell and foghorn, and ride down a spiral slide from the upper deck to the boiler room. The only attraction on opening day was Gadget's Go Coaster from Chippendale's Rescue Rangers television cartoon series. This is a miniature roller coaster appearing to be constructed from oversized objects such as combs, toothbrushes, matches, scissors, wooden block toys. The ride vehicles look as if they are made from hollowed out acorns. Frogs spit water at the guests as they ride past. Finally, there was the Chippendale Tree Slide and Acorn Crawl, which had two slides and inside a tree house and a pit filled with thousands of plastic acorns in which children could frolic. The acorns were later removed due to the frequency with which the maintenance crews had to shut down and clean the pit and acorns due to accidents. <clears throat> yeah. Connecting all the areas of Mickey's Toontown were the two jolly trolleys. The trolleys which appeared to be powered by giant wind-up keys would pitch and weave their way around the two fountains each end of Toontown. Sadly, due to the popularity of Toontown and the crowds, Disneyland executives believed it was unsafe to continue operating the trolleys. One remained stationary at the Toontown Jolly Trolley Station, and one was sold on eBay. So, Toontown in its heyday, what do you think?
3: It was cool in its heyday. The Bounce House, (laughs) I actually got to take a child through the bounce house when the bounce house was still in action. And that was a lot of fun. And, and of course I remember the ball pit too. And yeah, that was ball pits or ball pits. What can we say? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Well, my kids were the target target age when that first opened and they loved it. They um, would play in the ball pit. They went down the slides, they played in the bounce house. Um, But None of those were sustainable, I guess. That's the wrong word, but they didn't work because people don't know how to act, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, and and Disney lawyers got involved, and it's sad. Toontown is sort of a shell of what it was, and I'm hoping that since it apparently has been given, you know, a new lease on life, um, that they're going to give it some attention at some point. So because because it it is a very cool place. I just walked through there because I love the architecture and the cute little names and, you know, things that they did. I'll go and play with all the interactive stuff, you know, over in the downtown area, you know, and ring the bells and all that. It's a lot of fun. And it's It's a lot of section. It is. And it's a lot of things that children would miss a lot of the details. But um, so it's fun for adults to notice all that. So and I love the fountains. I want one of those there's one particular fountain I want. In I always my yard. I
0: always have to step on the the musical instruments.
2: Yeah. Yes. Around the one the other around yeah. the um fountain near Mickey and Minnie's house. Yep. If you step on the stones there they're interactive and will play Yep. music. Like, yeah. Now, to introduce The New Land, a syndicated television special aired on July 10th titled Disneyland Presents Tales of Toontown. Now, all that seems to exist for this is the synopsis. And in searching for a mischievous culprit who is mysteriously causing everything to go wacky in Toontown, Goofy enlists his human friend, Spence Dempsey, who's portrayed by Jerry Hawkins, who seemed to have a very short career, according to IMDb, to (laughs) discover the cause of all the crazy goings on. From April 2, 1993 through June 1994, guests retreated to Aladdin's Royal Caravan, a parade featuring the release of Disney's Aladdin on November 25, 1992. Although it was put together in just three months, it was well received. As described by Charles Solomon in the Los Angeles Times, various characters dressed as some of the genie's myriad guises mime to the Prince Ali song, which is repeated for the length of the parade. As a drum major, he leads buglers in glittering uniforms that might have been borrowed from the Baghdad High Marching Band. Clad in silvery white tailcoat, he steps his way through an approximation of the snazzy jitterbug that ends the Prince Ali number. A clever combination of balloons and a costume figure recalls the dance he does after splitting into three sections at the end of Friend Like Me. The genie is attended by a bevy of harem dancers, a phalanx uh, of scimitar wielding guards, a covey of women dressed as peacocks. Purple Peacocks, he's got 53, and an assortment of vendors, fakers, and hangers-on. I'm sure I've mispronounced at least a couple of those words. Fakirs, I guess, and hangers-on. The most imaginative costumes turn individual dancers into teetering columns of tumblers. Prince Ali and Jasmine appear on a mechanical version of Abu in his elephant disguise. Jafar is reduced to street sweeper. Well, he's actually following the elephant so you know it he's sweeping up he (laughs) brings he brings up the rear to the very vocal chagrin of iago the parrot and he's actually inside the um the 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 little sweeper um and that videos of this parade are plentiful on youtube
3: Oh, my God. I got to see that parade so many times in Florida. It was the exact same parade at Disney MGM Studios back then. And Mm -hmm. that was a great parade. That was so much fun. And everyone always enjoyed Jafar at the end, cleaning up and listening to Iago's voice coming out of the can. This is great. It was a really good parade. That was the era where Disney really knew how to do film promotion parades. and. Every film yeah. got a parade, you know, that well, started they, off then Hercules followed and yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Those were, and Mulan, the Mulan parade, that oh, was yeah. the era of parade.
2: Yes. And the Hercules parade, they, they continued. they continued the old tradition of every year. There was a new parade. Yeah. They weren't enormous, but they changed every year.
3: And there was so much fun mm-hmm. and the spitting camels who can forget the spitting camel yes. float from the, from the That's Aladdin right. parade. The mm-hmm. spitting camel float was awesome.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Now, since 1962, Adventureland's Tahitian Terrace had provided guests with dining and entertainment inspired by the islands of Polynesia during the summers and on busier weekends. The Planters Punch Tahitian was a popular drink made from a blend of tropical fruit juices. During a facility development meeting, plans to rehab the Tahitian Terrace waterfall were discussed. In nearby Buena Park, two dinner shows are bringing in crowds: Medieval Times and Wild Bill's Western. Executive show producer Eddie Soto suggested doing an Aladdin dinner show. The idea was immediately popular. David Mumford was tasked with designing the show and venue with a $1 million budget. On March 17, 1993, the Tahitian Terrace closed. On July 1st, Aladdin's Oasis opened and presented up to eight shows a day. Aladdin's Oasis was a dinner show that provided a meal of exotic delicacies, including papadum wafers with mint chutney sauce, fresh fruit with honey yogurt sauce, shish kebabs, your choice of beef, chicken, or vegetarian, raisin nut rice pilaf, Tabouli and dessert, along with entertainment by Aladdin, Princess Jasmine, Jafar Iago, a belly dancing harem group, and of course the fabulous genie of the lamp. For your meal's final course, rub the brass lamp on your table and make a wish. There's a puff of smoke from your lamp, and a genie brings you a chocolate Aladdin's lamp filled with chocolate mousse and berry topping. That was the best part of the meal. The Aladdin Oasis dinner show ran for two summers and selected seasons before the show was discontinued. It continued to run as a full service restaurant for another year during busy seasons before closing in 1996. And what a loss that was to that area of the park. Just not having that dinner show of any sort. The Pooh Corner Shop threw open its doors in Critter Country on April 11th, and on July 28th, the Bank of America closed its branch location on Main Street, USA, since ATMs no longer required having a physical branch location in the park. The location will continue to operate as the Bank of Main Street, a name that required special permission from the State Banking Commission since it no longer operated as a bank, and it served as the annual pass processing center. To end the year, the partner statue is dedicated on November 18th, 1993, in the middle of Central Plaza on Main Street, USA. The dreamer who envisioned Disneyland Park joins hands with the animated mouse who made him known worldwide. On the 65th anniversary of Mickey Mouse's first short, Steamboat Willie, this bronze statue was unveiled as a tribute to Walt Disney and his legacy. It was created by Blaine Gibson, a Disney legend who also sculpted Abraham Lincoln at Disneyland and 41 presidents for the Hall of Presidents at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, plus the crew of Pirates of the Caribbean and the Happy Haunts in the Haunted Mansion. The inscription quotes Walt's vision for the original Disney theme park. I think most of all what I want Disneyland to be is a happy place where parents and children can have fun together. If you'd like to learn more about the history of the partner statue, listen to my Connecting with Walt episode on the Magic Kingdom's Main Street USA. But despite all of Disneyland's efforts to increase attendance with the addition of Fantasmic and Mickey's Toontown, the economy was heading into a recession. And this was reflected in a drop in attendance for 1993, which was down to 11.4 million visitors for the year. On the morning of January 17th, 1994, Mickey Mouse and all his friends in Southern California were awoken by a 6.7 magnitude earthquake. Carol and I were staying across the street from Disneyland at the Desert Inn and Suites with our children and we heard the crash of the giant A yeah. <laughs> as it really? collapsed. And yeah, in in the in in the um in in the stadium. Chat, do really you guys
1: did it. Oh my gosh, it did.
2: It fell, yeah. So, anyway, so do you all remember that quake?
1: Oh, yeah,
2: no. yeah, it was uh the 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 it lasted throughout the day, all the after mm-hmm. and all that. So, um, Chapman University economists predicted a 10% drop in Southern California tourism, and you know, they were correct. The earthquake, the recession, and the disappointing attendance figures for the Los Angeles World Cup Soccer Championship resulted in a shocking drop in attendance at Disneyland. Only 10.3 million guests visited in 1994. This resulted in layoffs and a restructuring of management to streamline the operations. Not everything was doom and gloom for Disneyland in 1994. The largest and longest dark ride attraction ever designed for a Disney theme park at the time and the most anticipated Toontown attraction, described by some as the Mad Tea Party on Wheels, opened on January 26, 1994. The concept for Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin began in the 1970s when Tony Baxter proposed an Ichabod Crane attraction for Fantasyland in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. In this proposed attraction, guests would board a pumpkin. They could spin as they rode through the forest of Sleepy Hollow. Guests would be disoriented as they spun through the haunted forest whilst looking out at the headless horseman. On the Fantasyland episode of Connecting with Walt, I talk about why this and other unique attractions proposed for the Magic Kingdom's Fantasyland were never built. However, Joe Lanzaro was the project lead for Disneyland's Toontown. He had also worked on the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and he thought the zaniness of the spinning pumpkins would be perfect for Roger Rabbit. So the pumpkins became Lenny the Cab, who spins guests on a wild journey throughout the shop streets and back alleys of Toontown to save Jessica Rabbit from the clutches of the evil weasels whilst avoiding the dip. The Achilles heel for all tunes. To learn more about Roger Rabbit's cartoon spin, you can read my March 17, 2014 Diz blog article on the attraction and listen to our January twenty third, 2014 episode of the Diz Unplugged podcast Disneyland edition for my segment on the history of this attraction. I also narrate a ride through video of the attraction, which you can view on the Diz Unplugged website. Boy, I've done a lot. (laughs) (laughs) The Sword in the Stone Ceremony based on the 1963 animated film debuted in June at Disneyland. The Sword in the Stone Ceremony was held on the castle side of the King Arthur Carousel where there is a large anvil and a large sword embedded. Merlin the Magician magically appears several times a day to announce the realm is having a temporary leadership crisis and is temporarily in need of of a new ruler. But can someone be found who has the honor, decency, and inner strength to be the new ruler? Merlin selects several young volunteers who attempt to pull the sword from the stone. Typically, a rather muscular man will be first selected and fail, only to be shown up by a five year old who pulls the sword up <laughs> the stone with ease the triumphant volunteer is proclaimed ruler of the realm with all of the privileges and responsibilities (laughs) with it. They received a sword in the stone medal and a certificate acknowledging their accomplishment in pulling the sword from the stone. This sweet little show was quietly discontinued a few years later, reportedly due to the crowd flow problems caused by those who gathered to watch the ceremony. But the sword in the stone is still a setting for photos. The Lion King also roared its way into Disneyland with the debut of the Lion King celebration parade on July 1st, 1994, shortly after the premiere of the animated film. The Lion King Celebration was designed to tell the story of Simba, the hero of the Lion King, as if it were a tale passed down in Africa for generations. Its parade featured six floats designed around different aspects of Africa, dancers dressed in animal costumes, and a pride rock float featuring Simba and Nala. Up to 89 cast members performed in the Lion King celebration, which included 56 dancers, 12 puppeteers, 10 acrobatic pole dancers, six musicians, and five remote control operators. The Lion King celebration featured the first use of audio animatronics in a Disneyland parade. It also featured the first use of puppetronics, a technique used to create the large lifelike animal puppets featured on the floats. The design of the parade had strong roots in traditional African artwork, featuring vibrant colors, tribal designs, and dance routines based on traditional African dances. The parade was the first to break the traditional parade format by utilizing the showstop format. The parade was set to a mostly instrumental version of the song I just can't wait to be king. The first characters to appear are two rhinoceroses, or is there a rhinoceri? I don't know. Followed by tribal dancers and drummers in a float featuring Zazu and Rafiki with two giraffes. Zazu and Rafiki introduced the parade as it continues down Main Street, USA. A herd of gazelle dancers dressed in spandex costumes with hoods proceed afloat with tribal gazelle designs, pushed along by wildebeest dancers. They are followed by a group of tribal crane dancers, the elephant float and two remote-controlled crocodiles. The elephant float occasionally shoots a stream of water from its trunk in the first year of the show the larger mother elephant was preceded by a smaller baby elephant whose costume was similar to the rhinoceroses leading the parade only larger two pole dancers dressed in the tribal bird costumes walk at the sides
3: those Le- were cool yeah because they had the bird you know they made the birds fly all over the place they were gorgeous mm-hmm. yeah
2: everything about this parade yeah. was beautiful that was
3: Like I said, it was the decade for parades.
2: Leopard dancers dance around the rainforest float, which features monkey dancers on swings and Pumbaa on the back. Pumbaa talks to Timon, Timon who follows behind chasing three remote-controlled bugs, including a scorpion and a rhinoceros beetle. Two tribal bird pole dancers lead the drum dancer float, which features drummers, dancers, and percussionists in colorful, vibrant tribal colors. The last float, Pride Rock, is led by a group of zebra and cheetah dancers, two tribal elephant dancers, and two tribal bird dancers. Simba stands atop Pride Rock while Nala roars and drums out the beat with her paw at the foot of the float. Above them, Mufasa's face is represented in a spinning sun design, and the end of the parade is marked by two tribal zebras holding a rope. The parade eventually stops and Mufasa's voice is heard telling Simba to take his place in the circle of life. The song circle of life begins to play and the dancers dance and leap around the floats. At the end, Simba roars and white doves are released from one of the floats, symbolizing hope and peace. So as we were talking about, this was an absolutely magnificent um, parade. This is one of those that I never wanted to miss when I was in the park. Yeah. Um, Disneyland sold an official VHS tape of the production for home video, and I still have my copy. Um, Videos of this parade can be viewed on YouTube. The parade ran at Disneyland from June 1st, 1994 to June 1st, 1997, after which four of the floats and Mm. a lot of the props were moved to Disney's Animal Kingdom for the Festival of the Lion King show. Yep. Adventureland, the smallest of the realms and plagued with bottlenecks, had received little attention over the years, and it was about to receive a grand makeover. After a six-month refurbishment, the Jungle Cruise reopened in July. The same time, ground was broken for construction of a new attraction that would change not only Disneyland, but the future of theme park attractions, Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Forbidden Eye. In an effort to relieve the almost constant congestion within the land, the Jungle Cruise loading dock was moved back to its original location, 15 feet into the jungle. The boathouse was rebuilt back into a two-story structure to accommodate an extended queue. The ground floor of the boathouse was themed to appear as the ticket booth, boat maintenance, and shipping offices. The second floor housed the infirmary, dispatch office and skipper's lounge an audio animatronic hornbill and cobra also took up residence on the second floor the course of the river was rerouted to accommodate the future indiana jones attraction when the jungle cruise first opened the narration was scripted as a serious instructional river tour of the jungles similar to walt disney's oscar-winning true life adventure films When Walt assigned Mark Davis to work on the Jungle Cruise, it took on a comic tone to match the new vignettes Mark designed and had installed along the rivers. Now the Jungle Cruise is rethemed as a 1935 Jungle Outpost to complement the future Indiana Jones attraction. A new attraction backstory script and costumes were provided to the cast members to support the attraction's 1930s time setting. Another river attraction also received an update. In an attempt to remain relevant to a new generation of guests, Imagineer Kim Irvine received an assignment to rename some of the Storybook Land canal boats after more recent Disney characters. The two new boats would be named after Ariel and Belle. At the same time, Irvine got the idea for adding new scenes of recent films into the attraction. She began designing a Little Mermaid set. And Michael Eisner was so impressed, he approved the installation of an Aladdin set as well. Toad Hall would be replaced by Agrabah. The cave where the Wicked Witch from Snow White had lurked was replaced by the Cave of Wonders. And towards the end of the ride was the scene of The Little Mermaid. Much of the attraction was rehabbed and the landscaping refreshed. Years later, due to guest demand, Toad Hall would find new real estate in Storybook Land. Train fans gathered at Disneyland on August 15th to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Disneyland engine number three, the Fred Gurley, operating as a steam locomotive. Ron Dominguez, whose family owned 10 acres of land on which parts of Adventureland and Frontierland now occupy, retired on August 31st after 39 years of working at Disneyland since its opening day. The house Ron grew up in became part of Disneyland's original administration building. Ron started his Disneyland career when he was 20 years old as a ticket taker and by 1990 was the executive vice president of Walt Disney Attractions West Coast. The Skyway kicked the bucket on November 9, 1994, after 35 years and over 2 million trips carrying 150 million guests between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. Many reasons were given for the Skyway's demise. Park executives blamed the passing of recent laws, which made improvements to the Skyway cost prohibitive. The Skyway was not wheelchair accessible, and it no longer met the safety codes for aerial tramways. Imagineering had considered a new larger system with six-person-enclosed gondolas with air conditioning and heat. The new layout would take the Skyway around the Matterhorn, and a third station in Critter Country was seriously considered. Park executives also claimed the popularity of the Skyway had declined, so it was not worth replacing. Imagineer Tony Baxter believed the closure was due to the high cost of operating the Skyway and a desire by park executives to save money. Every time you add a new attraction like Indiana Jones, the cost of operating the park becomes more expensive. The result is a prevailing attitude that when something new opens up, something old should come down to offset the cost. Always direct, Disneyland president Jack Lindquist stated, I'm glad the Skyway closed. It was an accident waiting to happen. On its final night, a crowd of Skyway fans gathered at Disneyland to bid a fond and tearful farewell to the attraction. As the sun set, Mickey and Minnie boarded the ceremonial final bucket and rode across the park. Within days, the two support towers were taken down and the Matterhorn tunnels sealed. It was as if the attraction had never existed. In the autumn of 1994, a massive project to repaint Main Street USA began. This was claimed to be the largest rehabilitation project Main Street has received since opening day. This initiative was started due to the need to remove 30 to 40 coats of lead paint on the buildings and would continue into 1995. To strip the walls of paint, special teams had to wear protective gear. A new color scheme was designed for the facades to better match the new color schemes for the shop interiors. Disneyland's original color schemes for Main Street USA were more realistic, with grays and tans prevailing. The new color scheme would be brighter and more colorful, similar to Main Street USA at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Imagineer Kim Irvine designed the color scheme so each shop facade would reflect what products were within. For example, the candy shop was painted in seafoam green, peach, and cream. For Disney clothiers, shades of grays, blues, and wine, similar to colors in a man's necktie, were selected. The bank of Main Street facade was resurfaced in marble. The Main Street train station received a new roof. The original wood ornaments on all the buildings were removed and recast in either fiberglass or resin. All the internal structures of the original wooden buildings were reinforced. Another change occurred on Main Street USA on November 19th when the camera center moved to the Carefree Corner and changed its name to Main Street Photo Supply. And just in time for the holidays, the Golden Horseshoe Jamboree presented its last show on December eighteenth. However, what fans would Disneyland fans would fans would prove to have an incalculable impact on the happiest place on earth. On the same day, he dedicated the partner statue in Disneyland's Central Plaza. The enormously popular Jack Linquist retired as the president of Disneyland. On November 7th, his replacement, former toy industry executive and chief executive of the Disney stores, Paul Pressler, was named president of Disneyland. And so began the infamous Pressler era of Disneyland. And that is where our story will continue in part two of 60 Years of Disneyland, the Disney decade 1990 to 1999. Many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures were sourced for this episode of 60 Years of Disneyland, including The Disneyland Story, The Unofficial Guide to the Evolution of Walt Disney's Dream by Sam Genoway, Disneyland The Nickel Tour by Bruce Gordon and David Mumford, Recycled Rabbit, how Disneyland's party (coughs) property eventually began surprising guests at Walt Disney World's 20th anniversary celebration by Jim Hill, September 12, 2006. Yesterland, which features discontinued Disneyland attractions by Werner Weiss, and AllEars.net and the Disney Wiki for their articles on the sword in the stone ceremony. I'd also like to thank my lovely research assistant and wife, Carol mm-hmm. Bowling, for her invaluable awesome. work locating the... I know, and she would agree.
3: Uh, I'd like to thank... <laughs>
2: I'd like to thank her for invaluable work locating the additional material I needed for this episode. So there's our trek through the early 1990s. I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Michael. That is going to do it for this segment of The Dis Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other dis Unplugged podcasts this week. And, of course, we will be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disney okay. is always more magical when it's shared. Thanks for listening.